smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. God has spoken. Welcome to Smells Jesus-y, a podcast from Three Crosses Church. Today we're continuing our series, Following and Sharing the Way of Jesus. In this episode, Matt Waldron will be speaking to us from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 50. Obedience grows trust. Here's Matt. Uh, <laughs> well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, about 25 years ago-ish, when I was still at uni, uh, some friends organised to go abseiling. They said, we can get, if we get enough people together amongst our friends, then we can get a decent kind of deal from these, uh, you know, abseiling tour guys, and we can have our own group, and it'll be awesome, so everyone should sign up. So they kind of persuaded me to sign up. The thing is, I'm reasonably afraid of heights. I mean, not, not that it keeps me from leaving the house, but, you know, when I go with a group of you know, school friends to a, 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 you know, a lookout or anything up high, I would always be the person at the back of the group, and, and deliberately so. So I was, you know, I, I kind of was talked into abseiling and uh, kind of willing to give it a go, but not expecting to enjoy it. So they uh, explained to us very carefully how it all worked and how it was going to keep us safe and what we needed to do and what they needed to do. And I tried it and I loved it. And I was really surprised. Well, about five years ago, uh, I uh, realised in middle age that I needed to find a sport uh, to keep kind of uh, reasonably healthy as I got older, and uh, eventually I decided to take up rock climbing. And so I was rock climbing in these, in these climbing gyms with some guys, and uh, I sort of said, well, it'd be, this is lovely, but surely it'd be great to get out in the great outdoors and, and climb on real rocks. And so the guys that I was climbing with said, yep, yep, we can take you to do that. Uh, uh, we've got the equipment, we know what we're doing, so we went, we went to do that. And it became almost immediately obvious, once we started doing things, uh, that the guys I was climbing with didn't exactly know what they were doing, or they didn't really know what they were doing in that environment. Uh, and uh, at one point, uh, we decided that one of us needed to abseil down this cliff to sort out something. And uh, I... I felt like I'd be letting the team down if I didn't do my part, and I knew in general that I liked abseiling, so I sort of volunteered to do it. And as we were, we were kind of setting up to do it, I realised that not only did I not know enough to do this, but the guys I was with didn't really know what they were doing either. And so rather than you know, feeling relaxed and happy about that, I felt quite scared. Thankfully, a more experienced climber who was at the same cliff took mercy on us and sorted us out. But I decided that day, okay, if I want to do this, I actually need to learn to do it properly and, and get fully into it so that I can actually enjoy it. And so I, I, you know, I paid the money, I did the course, continued to learn since then, and now I love it. Rob, rock styling, rock styling, ab climbing. Both of those sound interesting. Anyway, uh, enjoy it very much. But it took a while, you know, I, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have known that I would like it until I tried it, and I had to really learn to do it properly to figure out how to make it work and enjoy it. Now, I don't know if you've had experiences like that. I'm sure lots of you have uh, tried things that have worked out better than uh, you perhaps expected beforehand. Maybe uh, peanut paste and pickle sandwiches, uh, maybe online dating, uh, maybe other things. 
Well, today we're looking at a Bible passage where Jesus uh, says that obedience grows trust, right? Uh, You obviously need to be persuaded to follow Jesus. You need to decide that the evidence is compelling enough, but you're only really going to understand how following Jesus works. You're really only going to get the benefits of following Jesus now if you jump in and obey him. And it's probably going to take some work to understand and learn and learn to do it in your life. But there's only so far you can get with Jesus without taking that step. So we're in uh, Matthew chapter 12 and we're at verse uh, 38. It's important to know what's just happened before this. Uh, Some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. And you might think at first glance that seems a bit harsh. But what's just happened before this is that uh, Jesus has healed a man who was blind and mute. Right? He's cast out a demon and people have said, wow, that is really impressively good. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. And some Pharisees have gone, no, no, no. It's by the prince of demons that he's casting out demons. They've acknowledged that he's doing something good that's incredibly powerful. Incredibly good, incredibly powerful. And they've decided that must be bad. Right? So we saw last week that that kind of logic is really dangerous. Right? When you see really good things and you call it evil, that totally twists your sense of right and wrong. That's really dangerous. And so for those people, right, it's some of the Pharisees answered him. And so, well, we'd like to see a sign from you. Right? They've just complained about the last sign they saw and misinterpreted it. So that's the context for Jesus saying it's wicked and adulterous. It's disloyal to God. For them to ask for a sign in this context. It's not wrong to want God to give evidence for his way, his saviour, his Lord. And God does give evidence and we're to see that evidence and investigate it and be convinced by it. But to then reject that evidence, to, to see good things and call them evil and say, well, what, I really need some evidence. No, that, that is wicked. That's what these people are doing. And so Jesus says... Uh, No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, that's the place where Jonah went to preach, post-fish, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Now, there's just a quick uh, sidetrack I need to deal with before we look at the logic of this passage. The quick sidetrack is, uh, those of you who are experienced Bible readers will uh, know that here Jesus says the Son of Man, that's him, is going to be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. However, normally when Jesus talks about his death and resurrection, he says he'll be killed and then raised on the third day. Okay, So uh, why, why the difference? 
Well, very quickly, the, the problem here is just that there is too many options of how it could work. Okay. Hello. Okay. Well, after that seamless transition, uh, for those listening to the recording, uh, we're now using a different microphone that hopefully won't die. Uh, okay, so where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, so in this passage, Jesus says that uh, he will uh, be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So this is a prediction that he's going to die and be raised to life again. When he normally makes that prediction, he normally says... Uh, that he will be killed and then raised on the third day. And uh, although those superficially uh, seem like contradictions, uh, the problem with this is not that there's no possible explanation. The problem is there are a number of possible explanations, so we just don't know exactly which one is the right one. Does that make sense? So the, the kind of simplest explanation is that uh, the way the counting days works idiomatically in this culture is that these are essentially equivalent that's the simplest explanation. There's some evidence for that, uh, just that they, they didn't count the days kind of precise. You know, on the third day was a bit flexible. Um, another possibility is uh, we're not exact... There's, there's different views of exactly how the timing of Jesus' death and resurrection worked because it wasn't just a normal week. It was a Passover week, which has additional rules for how Sabbaths work and stuff. So there's a theory that that's a bit different. Uh, there's also different theories about how Jonah's three days and nights in the belly of the whale worked, um, right? So the problem with this contradiction is there are many reasons why it's not a contradiction. We just don't know which one's the right reason. So uh, very happy to chat about that afterwards if you are that interested. Uh, but it's, it's not the point of the passage. Uh, the, the point of the passage is, this is the kind of sign he comes... He says you shouldn't be asking for a sign, so the only sign I'm going to give you is this kind of sign, and he says it's a sign like Jonah. Now, what kind of a sign uh, was the sign of Jonah? Well, it seems to me, if you read the book of Jonah, if you don't know the story, uh, the prophet Jonah gets told to go and tell uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, uh, Israel's enemies, to repent. And... Jonah says, I don't want to go. They're my enemies. I don't want them to hear God's word. I'm happy for them just to fry. And so he runs away. He goes the opposite direction. And then uh, God sends a giant storm to turn him around. Uh, Jonah kind of doesn't want to see the other people on the ship die because of him. So he gets them to throw, them, throw him overboard, assuming that he'll just die. And God sends a giant fish, uh, which, you know, the word in ancient Hebrew could mean any big sea creature, basically. He sends some giant sea creature, most simply it would be a giant shark, uh, to come and swallow Jonah. And uh, in the belly of the fish, probably semi-conscious, Jonah prays this prayer and apologises to God and promises uh, that he's going to you know, obey God from now on. So the giant fish spits him up on the beach and uh, Jonah goes, OK, I guess I've got to keep my word now. And so he goes to Nineveh. And he uh, gives the worst sermon in the history of preaching. 
His heart's really not in it. And yet, the whole city of Nineveh repents and says, maybe, maybe, if we change our ways, maybe God will be kind. And so then uh, Jonah goes up to a, a safe location, hoping to watch God destroy Nineveh. But the people have repented, and God is merciful. So God doesn't destroy them. Uh, the, the book of Jonah ends with Jonah just being annoyed. And the question you're asking yourself is, why can't this guy get it? And I think the obvious thing we're supposed to ask ourselves is, do we get it? Do we get that God is merciful? God is merciful to us and God is merciful to others. Well, the uh, thing that's missing from that story when you get to Jesus referring to it is how does the sign of Jonah being swallowed by the fish, how does that help? There is no indication, not even a hint in the book of Jonah, that anyone in Nineveh knew about it. You get, you get the, the impression that Jonah's heart is really not in the preaching. It's not like he's talking it up to try and persuade people. Uh, there's like a couple of hundred miles between the coast and Nineveh, so it seems unlikely that they would have just heard about it. The point of the sign is it was how God made sure he saved Nineveh it didn't help him to persuade Nineveh. Right? The Ninevites didn't see the sign. It was just God did it to save them. He made sure Jonah went and told them to repent. And so I think that's what Jesus is saying to these guys. The point of him saying the only sign you're going to get is my death and resurrection is not an invitation for them to come to the tomb and watch because you know, a more impressive miracle will persuade them. That's not their problem. The problem is they are so sinful, so twisted by evil, so self-deceived that they need Jesus to die for them. And God needs to change their heart. And I think uh, that interpretation is vindicated by the other example that Jesus chooses. Uh, verse 42 the Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something then greater than Solomon is here. Now, if the point was they need a more impressive miracle, there are plenty of impressive miracles in the Old Testament that Jesus could have chosen. But that's not what he chooses for his second example. He chooses... The Queen of the South coming to see Solomon, not because of his powers, not because of God answering incredible prayers, but because of his wisdom. She's impressed by Solomon's wisdom, which we know in the story of Solomon was a special gift that God gave Solomon. So it was still a sign in that sense. God did it especially in order to save people, in order to turn people around. But it wasn't some kind of special power or miracle or something. Uh, I think I've told you before about the time I tried to learn surfing. Uh, I, uh, borrowed, I was with a bunch of surfers, and so they said I had to have a go, which is fair enough. Uh, one of them lent me a, a, a wetsuit, and a surfboard that was like a small boat. 
so it'd be very hard to fall off. And they, you know, they took me out there and, and they're trying to encourage me, you know, tell me how to do it. And they're saying, don't try to stand up to start with, just do this and blah, 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 and telling me when to paddle and all that sort of stuff. And before we could even really get going, I started to feel really unwell. So I paddled back in. As soon as I got up on the beach, I threw up. So I said, unfortunately, I don't can't remember how seriously I meant this. Unfortunately, I'm too sick to try and surf today. As soon as I undid the wetsuit, I felt fine. It was just that the wetsuit was too tight. Now, I have not tried surfing again since then. However, I'm very happy to try surfing again because I figured out what I was doing wrong, right? It, if there was some reason I wanted to surf or if somebody invited me surfing or there's another opportunity to surf present, I'm going for it. Because it would just be foolish for some small misunderstanding, some mistake to stop me from enjoying a good thing. And similarly, with following Jesus, it would just be the height of foolishness for some misunderstanding, some irrational hesitation, some random negative early experience to put us off from following Jesus wholeheartedly and for the rest of eternity. Obedience grows trust. That's really what Jesus is trying to persuade these guys. I don't think he's responding to their sinfulness by just giving up on them and just, you know, you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. You can't see. No, no. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. What he's saying is you need God to raise the Messiah from the dead and change you. And you need to, at some point, you need to trust him. There's only so much persuading, there's only so much investigation of the evidence you can do. At some point, you just need to trust me. So do you want to grow in trusting Jesus? Well, the best thing you can do is grow in obedience. Experience God's way actually working. And of course, there's been plenty of examples from the last few weeks where we've been working through this section of the Bible and seeing how it applies to us. Any of those things, take them and do them more and see that they work and grow in trusting Jesus. Perhaps you've found some ways you like to share Jesus with people. We talked about that a few weeks ago. There are lots of possibilities, but if you never try, if you don't learn to do it, if you don't persevere enough to really experience it, then you'll never know. Have you found a way to study the Bible personally that works well for you? Uh, a bunch of us guys went to Perth Men's Convention last week and there was a wonderful testimony from a guy who, well, the sad thing was he'd uh, lost his wife, though it was an old age, so that's kind of as good as it gets. And he, he talked about the experience of learning to cope with that. And he said in the end it was the fact that he'd been personally reading the Bible for decades. That he just, he knew God personally. You don't get to experience the benefits of personally reading the Bible every day for decades unless you discipline yourself to personally read the Bible every day for decades. That's the only way to really experience that. Have you experienced God satisfying your desires in ways that are different to how you expected? Right? There are lots of possibilities, but if you never try, if you never learn to separate what you desire 
from what you're expecting, if you don't persevere enough to let God answer those prayers and surprise you, then, then you'll never really get how fantastically freeing that is. Have you experienced God convicting you that you're prejudiced against an individual or a group? Right, it's good to change kind of you know, attitudes and tell ourselves that we're not going to think that way anymore. But if you actually treat people differently, if you deliberately treat people as if they're created in God's image, as if God loves them so much that Jesus died for them, if you actually treat people that, people who you intuitively don't want to treat that way, if you actually treat them that way, well, then you will experience the benefits of that. That'll be a much bigger change in your heart than just having good intentions. Uh, personally, for me at the moment, uh, one of the issues I know some of you, uh, one of the projects I'm working on is uh, building a new home for my family. And when I say building a new home, at the moment we're at the stage of trying to get finance because the finance market's quite crazy at the moment. And so, uh, you know, there's all this trying to, you know, jump through the hoops uh, when people are very unclear what shape or height the hoop is. Um, and so I need to keep reminding myself, well, God has got this under control. Right? And I don't get the benefit of knowing God has got it under control unless I really believe God has got it under control. It doesn't help me to stress less unless I really believe it. Um, our kids, uh, you know, uh, are starting to get frustrated with the fact that we've moved further away from school and, uh, you know, we haven't yet moved into the new house because it's not built yet. And so they'll keep, they'll, you know, one of them once a week will ask how long to go. <laughs> yeah. And at first, my default response was to try and explain it all to them. And then there's a, there's a part of that that's appropriate. But I figured out, actually, what they need to know is that God has got this under control and that we can trust him. Unless you really believe, unless you really put into practice, you just don't get the benefit. Well, why is it like that? Obedience grows trust. Why is a relationship with God like that? Well, I think it's because of two things. The first one is evil needs replacing, not just removing, and because God's family is our real family. So the big idea for today is uh, obedience grows trust, and then there are two reasons for that or aspects of that. Evil needs replacing, not just removing, and God's family is our real family. So we see that uh, evil needs replacing, not just removing, in this parable that Jesus tells from verse 43. As I mentioned last week, uh, this story is happening in a, a, a culture that is very different from ours in regard to beliefs about spirits. And uh, once again, I don't think now's the time to concentrate on what we can learn from the Bible about the spiritual world, though that's an important question. Uh, here, Jesus is clearly using a parable. So he's not saying, I've got something to tell you about how the spiritual realm works. He's saying, given what you, Pharisees, believe about how the spiritual realm works, let me tell you an illustration of what I'm trying to tell you, right? So here it goes. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. 
and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So the, the basic idea of the story is pretty simple. Right? You have this uh, evil spiritual power in a person. The evil spiritual power leaves and you know, looks for what else to do now. And it happens to come back to the person and find unoccupied, except it's all been tidied up and made nicer. Well, that's, not, that's irresistible. So it goes and gets more friends to make sure it doesn't get kicked out again and then takes up residence again. So there's more evil power in that person to start with, to end up with than it started off. Uh, so although the idea is foreign, I think it's pretty easy to understand. We would probably use a different illustration today. Uh, you know, someone is uh, living a life of crime, perhaps uh, stealing things for a living, and you want them to stop. Well, it's not going to be enough to just get them to physically stop stealing. They're going to have to have some other productive way to make money and live. Right? You've got to replace the bad thing with something good. Many of you know I used to work as an alcohol and drug addictions counsellor. Right? That was the mantra. If someone's using a substance that is damaging them in the way they're trying to cope with their emotions, that was normally what was going on, it's not enough to just stop them having that unhealthy way of dealing with their emotions. They've got to have a good, healthy way to deal with their emotions. And it's the same with us. We all have issues that we need to deal with, turn from, and grow out of. But it doesn't happen by just saying that this thing is bad, now I'll get rid of that and just be neutral. Right? There's no neutral. There's going backwards or there's going forwards. You've got to get rid of the bad stuff and replace it with something good. Um, I feel like this can either be a very harsh challenge or a wonderful encouragement, depending on how you see it. I mean, it could feel like a terrible burdensome challenge. You mean I've got to not only stop doing the bad thing, I've also got to find something good to do? That sounds like even more work. But it seems very encouraging to me. You know that bad habit that I've been trying to keep, or you, or, you know, you've got a bad habit. I'm just I'm not confessing right now, I'm just saying. You know, we all know what it's like to have a bad habit that's hard to kick. One of the keys is to replace it with a good habit. I find that so encouraging. Right? The next, thing, next time I find something, I think, oh my goodness, I didn't realise was, I was treating people that way, or I didn't realise I'd slipped back into that, or whatever it was. Actually, if I can replace it with something good, that's going to make an enormous difference. And so doing good, obeying God, following God's ways, it's not just a case of seeing the attractiveness of it. It's not just a case of getting rid of the kind of opposites. It's a case of filling our lives and ourselves with those good things. Uh, I personally think that's incredibly encouraging. Well, uh, so obedience grows trust, firstly because evil needs replacing, not just removing, and secondly because God's family is our real family. I don't know how this strikes you, but this is uh, just astounding to me. This is in, from verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I just think that's incredible. Here is Jesus' flesh and blood, mother and brothers, concerned about him, wanting to speak to him. Uh, I don't think that he never spoke to them again. I don't think it's that big a snub. But he's not going to just leap up and run to them. What he says is, my disciples, people who obey the will of God my Father in heaven, those are my real family. Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, we'll catch up with uh, Christian friends and, uh, you know, just depending on uh, their preferences usually, uh, some of them, uh, you know, our kids call uncle and auntie or we tell them to call them uncle and auntie and occasionally one of our kids will say, I can't call them that, they're not my real uncle. And I say to them, yes, they are because God's family is our real family. Now, I've put that without any uh, caveats or uh, extra explanations because I'm hoping that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It may just mean that you're more godly than me and you don't feel uncomfortable. But I think this is very confronting for most cultures of the world. Most cultures of the world, family is really important. And it's true that family is really important. But here Jesus says, God's family is our real family. So... Before we figure out how that fits with our biological family, we've got to see that that's as big a deal as Jesus is saying it is. That really is a big deal. I mean, just imagine that you say to a member of your biological family, someone who's not following Jesus but you're close to, If you're not following Jesus, you're not really part of my family. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, I don't suggest that you put it that harshly, okay? But that's how big a deal this is. Well, how might you say it? Well, God, in the beginning, created the world and created people to be his family, right? You might not know the, that detail of the story, but it says, the Bible says God created human beings, men and women, in his image. And then a couple of chapters later, it tells us that just as God created Adam in his image, Adam had a son in his own image. So for God to create people in his image is a way of saying God created human beings to be his children. That's our purpose. That's how we're designed. That's God's purpose for every human being, for us to be his family. I don't know uh, how emotionally demonstrative uh, your family is. Your biological family, I should clarify. I've got to do that for the rest of this sermon, don't I? Yeah, okay. Uh, But in, in my family, there's kind of an obvious contrast between those members of the family who are very emotionally demonstrative and those members of the family who are very emotionally reserved. There are the the members of our family who settle disagreements by uh, pressing their lips together, going to spend some time by themselves 
and then uh, perhaps writing a letter or uh, coming and uh, reciting a well-crafted couple of sentences. You know, there's those members of the family, and then there are those families, members of the family who just say what they're feeling, when they're feeling it, at high volume. And sometimes those members of the family say things like, I wish I wasn't in this family. More often they just say, I wish you were dead. But it's similar, really. Uh, so, sometimes people feel like they don't want to be in the family. But uh, when our children you know, express that kind of feeling, that they don't, don't want to be in the family, that doesn't mean that they stop being in the family. That doesn't mean that we stop loving them. It doesn't mean that we stop providing a roof over their head and food for them. It doesn't mean that we stop caring for them. And generally... Uh, we understand that they're children, and at some level, they don't really mean it. Though they might feel upset or angry or whatever it is. But of course, there is a limit on that. Like at some point, when they're 25, if they move to the other side of the world and refuse to give us their address and never have any contact with us, we can't make them be part of the family. We're still open to them coming back. But we can't make them be part of the family. And that's the same in the way God treats us. God has made all people to be part of his family. And we all, are either in our emotionally demonstrative tantrums or in our quiet... Uh, thinking it's more sophisticated, just ignoring him, whatever we do. We've all turned away from him and acted like we're not part of his family, but we really are. So much so that God sent his only eternal child, the one who is most truly irreplaceable, sent Jesus to die. To take the, the shame that rejecting our Heavenly Father deserves. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how rebellious teenagers deserve to be treated. But God, our Heavenly Father, doesn't treat us that way. I certainly hope you don't treat your children that way. Because he did that to Jesus. Jesus took that on our behalf. So that doesn't need to happen to us. And of course, Jesus was raised to life again and raised up and seated at God's right hand in the place of honour as God's right-hand man running the universe. And so that's the position that he offers to share with us. Not because we deserve it, certainly not, but because he loves us as his children. He wants us to be, uh, you know, part of the family business running the world. And so, for people who don't know Jesus yet, they belong in God's family. That's the thing to say to people. You belong in God's family with me. But you've got to come in. You've got to stop running away. At some point, it'll be too late if you don't. 
So what that means in, uh, you know, in a real practical level, how can you put that into practice? Well, in our local church family. It's not that our local church is the whole of the church, because it's not. It's just our local gathering of you know, some of the Christians in the local area who've decided to gather together. But still, this is practically how we most obviously experience this, isn't it? Uh, so it means, I think, this is one of those things where the, the way you get to experience church family life is by jumping in and figuring out how to make it work for you and communicating with each other and persevering and continuing. I don't know what your uh, experience of family is like, but my experience is it, you know, it takes work. But it's also wonderful. I don't know if you've seen the uh, TV show uh, Married at First Sight. I've only seen the Australian edition. I don't know if there's other countries. If you haven't seen the show, the basic idea is they recruit people who are completely dysfunctional and then marry them to each other to protect the rest of the population from them. I think that's how it works. I haven't watched a lot of it. But uh, the, one of the things they say in the show that's really unhelpful is they keep describing... This, this thing of getting married without meeting the person, it's basically an arranged marriage, arranged by experts. They keep describing it as an experiment, which always feels very disrespectful to the thousands of cultures which for thousands of years have done marriage that way. But the, the, the immediate problem with that is that if people go into it with the attitude, I'm going to really give this experiment a go, then they're saying it's an experiment. Right? You can't experience falling in love with someone unless you're vulnerable enough to fall in love with someone. You certainly can't experience the security of commitment to someone if you're not committed to them. Uh, it's heartbreaking. And it's the same for God's family. Right? We can't experience any of the benefits beyond what we're willing to make ourselves vulnerable So there you go. Uh, obedience grows trust. Obedience grows trust because um, evil needs replacing, not just removing. And obedience grows trust because God's family is our real family. I had an experience recently, well, Cheryl and I had an experience recently uh, that I think is a lot like this in our family, the two of us as a couple. Uh, so, as I mentioned, we're in the process of trying to, you know, build a home. So in the meantime, we've moved in with uh, parents and, uh, you know, with three kids and other people. It's pretty, it's pretty cosy. So, so personal space and uh, space for the two of us together and that sort of thing are at a premium. And so I was feeling recently like, uh, well, I need to make sure that I give Cheryl the time she needs by herself but obviously we also want time together. And I was feeling like uh, I wasn't getting as much time together as I would like. Uh, but I also respected that, you know, time for her by herself is in pretty high demand, given everything that's going on. So I just wanted to, you know, talk to her about that and, uh, and ask if there's any way to free up more time for both of us without cutting into her time by herself. The terrible irony of this was that she was feeling exactly the same way. That is, she was feeling like she wanted more time with me, 
but there wasn't enough time for me to have enough time by myself, and so she didn't want to cut into my time by myself. So we'd both been kind of dancing around this issue and thinking, uh, we don't want to hurt the other person's feelings, we don't want to be demanding, but we, we really like to see more of each other, but they don't want to see more of me. And it was all just a miscommunication. We both wanted more time together, and the reason we weren't having it was just because of the change of circumstances throwing everything out of whack. Uh, so glad that we got that sorted out. I mean, how terrible would it have been to go on like that for months just because we just didn't communicate about it? Uh, I don't know your, any of your hearts, though I know a lot of you very well, but wherever you are at with God and with his command to trust Jesus, uh, get it sorted out. Uh, the Pharisees in our story just had this completely over-the-top twisted misunderstanding of Jesus' miracles. I expect none of us are in that situation. But if there are things holding you back, sort them out. If there are things that seem like they're not working, figure it out. If that feels scary, just remember, obedience grows trust. Jump in, you won't regret it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us a great deal of evidence to show us the truth about Jesus, the truth about you, and the truth about your world. But Father, it's not enough for us just to know these things in our minds. Father, please help us to put them into practice. Father, sometimes we can have doubts or feel fear for other reasons. Uh, we do thank you that you uh, give us each other, the Bible, insight into the world around us to help persuade us. But Father, at the end of the day, we need to trust you and obey so that we can get the benefits. And so Father, please, in your mercy, help us to do that. Uh, help each of us to take a deliberate step in trusting you more this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.